Hey, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23 this evening. We're going we're gonna to continue in our study through the book of Luke. We're going to finish chapter 23 uh, tonight. Um, as you open your Bibles there, maybe you forgot your Bible today. The ushers are going to pass out Bibles right now, so don't be shy about raising your hands. If you need a Bible, they'll get one to you. Luke chapter 23. As they're passing those out, let me introduce the text tonight this way. Um, personal story, back in March of 2000, uh, there was the world premiere of a movie called Aaron Brockovich. And my family had the very surreal experience to be invited to that premiere and to walk the red carpet. And, and so it was, it, Entertainment Tonight was there, and all the news outlets were there. Everybody wanted to know, you know, who was I wearing, all of that stuff. No, but <laughs> uh, it was... It was just weird to be, I mean, Steven Soderbergh is famous director, he's there, Julia Roberts is there, Aaron Eckhart is there, and all, and we're on this thing. Well, not only were we invited to attend the premiere, we were invited to the after party. And the after party was right next door, the premiere was at a theater in, in Westwood, near UCLA, and, uh, and there was a... Um, there was a, a, they had made up a, a big tent area, uh, and they decked it out uh, as only Hollywood can, and we were invited to this after party, and I'm not kidding you, there was maybe a couple hundred people there, um, and, uh, and Julia Roberts is there, Brad Pitt is there, Jennifer Aniston is there, Danny DeVito's there, Aaron Eckhart, Albert Finney, I mean, and a hundred other people uh, who are almost as famous as me, and they were all there. Um, and we're in that midst. Now, I tell you that story by way of introduction because in order to get in, I didn't get in for, you know, hey, Ted's cool, let's have Ted come, right? I didn't get in that way. We had to have a pass, and our pass was our son. He'd been in the movie, with, playing Julia's son in that movie, and so he, my son was our pass into an area that we would have normally been excluded from. And I tell you that story today because the admission pass that we've received from God's Son is what we're going to be looking at tonight. And we're talking about an admission to the presence of of God, which pales, you know, that, you know, everything else I've said, you know, being, you know, in a, in a room, like hanging out with, sitting at the table with, you know, these, these all, these, you know, all these famous people and all, who cares, man, the, the, the fact that we have an admission pass to the very presence of God, man, that ought to fire you up, that's an amazing thing, and that's what we're going to look at in our text tonight, we're in Luke chapter 23, let's jump in at verse 44 where we left off, it says, now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, Jesus had been placed on the cross at the third hour, about nine o'clock in the morning, and here now, three hours later, it's the sixth hour, it is high noon, and, uh, and the sun now is suddenly darkened. And, and we see an interest, uh, similar things, interestingly, um, in Exodus chapter 10, when Israel was in Egypt, uh, at the first Passover, leading up to the first Passover, God sent darkness to precede that Passover, as the angel of death poured out the wrath of God on the wicked. Uh, and here now, at the fulfillment of Passover, God brings darkness once again as God's wrath is now poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ, for, for the sins 
of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus going to the cross. And our text doesn't talk about it today, but uh, one of the other gospel accounts records one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What Jesus is articulating as he cries that out is the, the idea that he had become sin and because he had become sin for mankind then he was separated from the Father. And so, so this was the anguish of, of what Jesus was going through. And so darkness is all over the, the, the face of the earth. I like what David Guzik said in his commentary. He says, the remarkable darkness uh, all over the earth showed the agony of creation itself in the Creator's suffering. And understand, this darkness, this was not a natural event. This was not an eclipse of the sun. This was a supernatural event. Event Warren Wearsby in his commentary, he says, It was a God-sent darkness that shrouded the cross as the Son of God was made sin for us. Now, how do we know it was a supernatural darkness? Um, well, the crucifixion took place during Passover, and Passover has always been held at a full moon, right? Always held at a full moon. And this is a time when a natural eclipse of the sun is, is strictly impossible. And historians corroborate this event. A Roman historian uh, named uh, Phlegon, he wrote this. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour. The day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. Now, Luke doesn't mention the earthquake, but Matthew, in his gospel, he does mention the earthquake. He, Matthew 27, verse 51, he records, uh, At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split apart. Now, Matthew mentions the temple being torn. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all take care to include that vital detail, that the curtain, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now, why is that a vital detail? And, and why should we care about curtains? Why do we care about curtains? I was putting this together. I was reminded of an experience I had recently. I've told a lot of you that, that we, my wife and I, Brenda and I, we just bought a fixer-upper, and it's more fixer than upper, right? And so we have been... We've been tearing out walls, we gutted the kitchen, we ripped every bit of, of 35-year-old carpeting out of, the, out of the house, you know, just, just gutted the whole thing, living in dust for so long. And in the middle of all of this, I mean, there's still dust in everything, like drywall dust just gets everywhere. You open up a, a cupboard and you un, unseal something and there's drywall dust in it. I mean, just everywhere. And in the midst of chaos... Brenda schedules an appointment with, with a, a, one of the a blind salesmen, you know, the people that, share, that sell window coverings. And, and she wants to look at Roman shades. And honestly, I'm thinking, who cares at this point? Who cares about the curtains? I don't care about the curtains. I'd like a floor to step on. I would like a sink to wash my dishes in, you know. And, and now, I'll just hit the pause. This had nothing to do with our study, but... For those of you that haven't been married for a long time, let me just tell you, when you're asking who cares, if your wife cares, then take a clue, you ought to care, right? And, and so, so I'm like, okay, Roman shades, yeah, let's go, we'll get them, you know? And I have to admit, they look fantastic. So, and, 
at any rate, um, here's why this detail matters to us. Here's why we should care about window coverings, right? About, and they're not window coverings. They're, they're, it's a veil. It's a curtain. But here's why we should matter. The temple had three parts. Um, you had the courts, you had the holy place, and you had the most holy place. Now, the courts is where all the people would gather, right? And then you had the holy place, and this is where the priests would gather and do their, their daily work. And then you had the most holy place, and this was the place where the high priest entered in once a year to offer a sacrifice for the people. And... Um, so the, between the holy place where the priests did their, their, their regular work and the most holy place where only the high priest would go in once a year, they were divided by this, by this curtain, by this veil. The holy place divided from the most holy place. And the most holy place was the place where the sins of the people were atoned for. Very important. The writer of Hebrews explains this for us. He says, the priests regularly entered the first room uh, as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. He continues, and he, the high priest, always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of uh, the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed here it is, that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration, the Holy Spirit tells us through the writer of Hebrews now, uh, pointing to the present time for the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the conscience, consciences of the people who bring them. Uh, for that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So what he says is this. Basically, the point is that the access to the most holy place into the very presence of God was limited because of sin. And as well, the sacrifices that the high priest would make in the most holy place to atone for sin, those sacrifices were limited because they were insufficient to atone for our sins once and for all. So when the high priest went into the most holy place, again, it was only once a year that he would go in, and it was only after considerable preparation. Um, the high priest would prepare himself uh, with prayer and by fasting, and then he would ceremoniously wash. Uh, four times he would wash himself, and in between every time he would wash himself, he, he would change his priestly garments and so put on new clean priestly garments in between each washing. So this great elaborate process, and this was all to ensure that, that as he went into the very presence of God, that, that he himself was clean and unblemished before entering into God's presence. Otherwise, he would die in God's presence. And there are those that teach on this, and frankly, I don't know if this is true or if this is just legend or, or not, but uh, it's, it's been said that the high priest, before he would go into the most holy place, would have a rope tied to his ankle in case he went in there and had some sort of unconfessed sin that God, going into the presence of God, he would drop down dead. 
And, and then people would be like, they'd, they'd grab the rope and, and let's pull him out of there. They don't want to go in there and get struck down dead as well. So they would drag him out by uh, the rope. The writer of Hebrews continues. He says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. It was a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. In other words, the whole system was intended to point to Jesus. The whole system was to point to Jesus, our high priest, who would make himself be himself the sacrifice for sin. Again, the writer of Hebrews continues, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time, and then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right Hand And there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. Uh, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. When he forever made perfect those who are, ever, will, or, or, uh, being made holy, who's he talking about? You got a mirror? You. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. That he's making us perfect. We don't have to go through all of those ceremonial washings and change our clothes and have a rope tied to our ankle to go into, I'm going in to pray now, honey. You know, pull me out if God strikes me dead kind of thing. We don't need to do that because Jesus died for us. So that's the significance of the veil being torn is that Jesus Christ's work on the cross, because of that, <coughs> you and I can now come directly to God. We can come boldly before his throne any time, day or night. And this is what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. He says, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and a life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the very presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Hallelujah for that, right? Thank you, Jesus. Seriously, that's, this is the greatest news that you will ever hear. The Bible says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Let me ask you a question. Are you in a time of need? Are you in a time of need? Do you need God's mercy? Do you need the grace of God? Listen, in Christ, you can come directly to God with that. You can come right into his presence. You don't need a priest to intercede for you. You don't need Mary to pray for you. You don't need to recite 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers and, and do some sort of penance to be able to come into the presence of God. You don't have to clean your life up to come to God. I'm preaching the gospel truth to you tonight. 
Okay, I'm not bashing or beating up on Catholics. I'm simply saying that the Bible says that you, because of Christ's work on the cross, can come boldly before the throne of grace. But you have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ to do that. You have to invite Him to be your Lord and Savior. You have to believe and trust in the Lord. You can come directly to God. The veil has been torn for all who will surrender and receive their life, surrender and receive salvation that Christ purchased for them. The way has been opened. The veil has been torn. And not only has it been torn, Matthew makes a point of telling us, and we read the scripture, that it was torn from top to bottom. It was torn from top to bottom. The significance is it's not from the bottom to the top. It's not man tearing it to make a way up to God, forcing his way in. It's God from the top down, God making a way to man to welcome mankind in. And what a beautiful thing. Now, we continue. Verse 46 tells us that when Jesus had cried out, so the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Torn in two because Jesus had become sin for us and given his life as a ransom for many, making that access possible. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now the way Luke writes this verse, you might get the idea that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, what he said in that loud voice was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? Because that's the way the sentence reads. But in actuality what happened is that he cried out with a loud voice, he said something, and then having said that something, he then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what is that something that he said? Well, John tells us in his gospel what it is that he cried out right before he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right before, as he cried out, what he said was to tell us that. He said, it is finished. It is finished. The price of your sin has been paid. The work that Jesus Christ came to do from the foundation of the world. And when Jesus came, as a man being born in Bethlehem, it was all for this moment in time that he would give his life as a ransom for many, that he who knew no sin would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what he means by it is finished, is that I've paid the penalty. I've paid for your sin. It's a done deal. You don't have to do anything more to it. You don't have to add your good works to it. You don't have to clean your life up to come to God. There's nothing more that needs to be done other than Jesus, thank you. You paid it all. All to you I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. You washed it white as snow. And I'm going to receive that cleansing. I'm going to receive that, receive that forgiveness. I'm going to receive you as my Lord and Savior, and there is nothing separating me from your love. There's nothing separating me from your presence. There is no, now no longer any barrier that hinders me from coming into the Holy of Holies before your very face, because God, you are good. It is finished. All your sin, past. All your sin, present. All your sin, future, has been atoned for by the work that Jesus did. And so Jesus cries out, 
it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, the text tells us, Luke tells us, he breathed his last. Now, with these last words, when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he fulfilled the, the prophetic uh, words of the, of the psalmist in Psalm 31.5. Uh, who said this, uh, Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Now this psalm, the recitation, the, re, you know, the, the regular reciting of this psalm was actually a part of children's bedtime, bedtime prayers. As they were going to sleep and they would trust their, their, their father, God, with, with their very life, with their very soul. And they would say, I, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and so this is what Jesus prays out. Now, contrary to rumors that were spread after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus didn't faint on the cross. He didn't fall unconscious on the cross only to be revived later. These were some of the, the rumors that were spread falsely to try to discount the, the marvelous supernatural work of his resurrection. <coughs> Luke, a medical doctor says what happened on the cross. He says that Jesus breathed his last. That phrase, breathed his last, it means to breathe out. It means to breathe out one's life. It means to breathe out your last breath. It means to expire or to die. And so Luke, a medical doctor, is saying, Jesus did this, Jesus said this, and then Jesus died. He died for our sins. Now, here... With what has transpired, mankind comes full circle. In Genesis 2-7, we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this was the first Adam. The man created to walk with God in intimate relationship with God. But that first Adam fell into sin. Sin poisoned and infected him and the rest of the world. And now subjects both Adam and Eve, their offspring of which we are included, to having to die. Having to, we're no longer, you know, our flesh is 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 not going to live for eternity. Your soul will live for eternity. The question is where? But your flesh will now not live for eternity. We have death. And so there was a day when Adam breathed his last. Jesus on the cross breathed his last. And a day is coming for every one of us when we will breathe our last breath. And uh, Pastor Tebow last week, he, uh, he made reference to Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for men to die once, but after this, to the judgment. But here, listen, the good news of the gospel is, though Jesus, is that through Jesus' death, we can have life. We can have eternal life. Uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15.45, he said, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Right? And so what happens is we see Jesus, he breathes his last, but he gives to us eternal life. God breathed life into Adam through sin. Hey, the body that God breathed life into died, but through the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the Jesus dying for our sins, breathing his last and dying, we might live for eternity. 
and have the breath of life eternally. Luke chapter 23, verse 47, we continue. It says, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God. Now, a centurion, by the, the, the name, and we get the word century. Century is a hundred, and so a centurion was a guy who was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. And so when the centurion saw what had happened, he's the guy presiding over this crucifixion, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, it is difficult for us to really understand what everybody looking on experienced. We hear the story over and over again, we have heard this story uh, a lot if you've been in church for a long time. This is a very familiar story, and we're familiar with the details of the story, but we are not familiar with what they would have experienced being there, taking these things in. And what they experienced was absolute pure evil and hatred in this moment. This is demonic darkness on a scale that none of us will ever imagine. I don't know if you've ever had occasion to travel internationally. We, we live um, in a nation that, you know, is, is falling apart, um, but really our society, our culture, it's had a lot of influence of Christians in it, and, and you, you feel that. You feel... You don't feel the level of darkness that you feel when you travel someplace else. I've gone to some places, some, some you know, places where it's 99.9% Muslim. And man, you get off the plane and the darkness is so thick you can cut it with a knife. It is, it is just, it almost takes your breath away how dark it is. It's never been anything like what these people experienced at the foot of the cross. The absolute wicked, darkness, demonic uh, hatred that is going on. The wrath of God being poured out upon sin. The sun supernaturally being darkened. The earth violently shaking. And it left everyone. And Jesus, in the midst of all this, the personification of love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Laying his life down willingly. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it left everyone stunned and shaken to the core, convicted of what they had just participated in. And even this hardened centurion, how many crucifixions had this guy presided over? I have no idea. But even he is shaken to his core, and he says, surely this was a righteous man. Now Mark's gospel records the centurion's words this way. It says, When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Jesus had said earlier to his disciples, He said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. He's talking about crucifixion. He was talking about when he died on the cross for the sins of mankind. That is how he's going to draw men to himself, right? I'm going to draw all people to myself. 
That word, that phrase, all people, literally means each. It means every. It means any. It means all, right? And here we see the very first one, in my opinion. Because what happens here, we've got a Gentile. Consider this. He literally has Jesus' blood on his hands. Literally has Jesus' blood on his hands, presided over his crucifixion. We don't know for sure. It would seem, and, and, and I, I, I think maybe perhaps, and maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, but I think maybe he's converted. That, that, that he sees that Jesus was the Son of God. It's a statement of, of, of belief, right? Now, there has to be surrender Right? There has to be a surrendering involved. There, salvation isn't just going, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe he's the Son of God. There, there has to be a, a repentance that takes place in your life. Repentance means to turn. And, and so, you know, when, when I give an invitation and, and I invite people, hey, you know, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? And I want to pray and I want to give you an invitation to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And obediently, because of the text, I can't otherwise, I'll give that invitation tonight. And when I give the invitation, I'll invite you, hey, if you need, if you need to have your sins forgiven, if you want to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand. And, and listen, just raising your hand is not necessarily in and of itself an indication that, that you're born again and saved, that you've received forgiveness. The, the Bible's very clear that there needs to be repentance in your life. But repentance simply means to turn. And, and what you're doing is you're turning from sin and you're turning to Jesus. But your salvation isn't, hey, repentance means you're turning and now you're going to you know, get all your works right and now with your works all right, that's what gets you saved. No, it's a turning to Jesus and crying out and raising your hand in a prayer is a turning to Jesus Right? I, I, I want to know you, right? But then repentance is proven by what you do after that. If it was just a fire insurance prayer, then it means nothing. But if you raise your hand to, to receive Christ, and, and then you, you say, I'm committing my life to you, and I know you clean your fish after you get them in the boat, and you got a lot of cleaning to do in my life, but I'm going to trust you with that, and now I'm just going to endeavor to know you, and I'm going to commit my life to you. Man, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Here's the thing, no matter what you've done, and, and let's just assume that this centurion, he, he, he who was presiding over the very crucifixion with literally blood on his hands, let's say that this was a true act of repentance, that he confessed that surely this was the Son of God and now followed, followed after Jesus. We don't know. But assuming that it's real, we'll talk about the grace and mercy of God there. The guy that, that, that was presiding over his very crucifixion, listen, you can receive that as well. You can receive grace and mercy and forgiveness, and you can be converted by the Holy Spirit as well. And maybe you have. Then you know what? This text serves as a reminder. We serve a great God. And, and we need to just praise Him and thank Him for what He's done. And it's healthy that we should be reminded often of what Christ has done for us. I like what Bruce Barton said in his uh, commentary. He said, uh, this pointed forward. He's talking the confession of the centurion that truly this was the Son of God. This pointed forward to the coming days of evangelism and the missionary effort of the church when God would draw people from all nations. But, verse 49, we've read it. Let's look at it again. All his acquaintances 
And the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, we know from John's gospel that one of these women who followed from Galilee was his mom, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you may recall way back in Luke chapter 2, a couple years ago when we were there, And what happened, Mary and Joseph, they brought baby Jesus to the temple for his dedication. And a godly man named Simon uh, saw Jesus. And he'd been praying for this and, and, and waiting for the Messiah to come. And he took Jesus in his arms and he said this to Mary. It says, then Simon blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And you you can probably well imagine, and I I can reasonably speculate, that Mary had had many years to reflect on what Simon had said. A sword is going to pierce your soul also. And I have no doubt her... Her soul was pierced when she saw Jesus opposed by the religious leaders and mistreated by some and maligned by others. But here now, at the foot of the cross and seeing her son go through this, she knows like only a mother can, that sword piercing her very soul. Verse 50, now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man, says he was a council member. That's the idea that he was part of the Sanhedrin, basically, part of the religious rulers. And it said he, verse 51, had not consented to their decision and their deed. He was against what they were doing to Jesus. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of of Jesus, Because normally what would happen is a person was condemned to die by crucifixion and they would leave the body up there to rot. They would leave it to the wild animals to, to eat the body and all as a warning to everybody else. And so he goes to Pilate. He says, I want the body of Jesus. I want to give him a proper burial. And verse 53 says, then he took it down. And so the implication is Pilate agreed. Um, He wrapped it in linen, he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed afar, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned, and they prepared spices and fragrant oil so that they could properly anoint his body for this burial. And they rested on the Sabbath according to to the commandment. So this was their their plan. Now, again, customarily, the bodies would be left on the cross. um, But if a family was rich or if they were influential, the Romans would, on occasion, consent to a proper burial for the person that had been crucified. But Jesus' disciples, they're in no position to do this. They don't have any influence and they don't have any money. Joseph of Arimathea offers up a tomb. This would have been a very costly thing. Not the average person had this tomb available. And so uh, he's in a position where he can do both. Not only does he have influence, but he also has the, the means to be able to provide this. 
Now, he may not have realized it, and this is very important, and we're getting close to wrapping up, so pay quick, close attention here because there's a point of application in here for all of us. He may not have realized it, but through his humble service, Joseph of Arimathea was fulfilling prophecy. Here's what Isaiah the prophet had said. He said, the Messiah was cut off out of the land of the living for the trans- transgression of my people. Uh, he was stricken. And men appointed his grave with the wicked, right? You're crucified, you go rot there on the cross. But he was with the rich in his death, right? A rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, neither was there guile in his mouth. Here's the application. You never know how God is going to use your offerings for his glory. You never know. See, because the the Romans, they would have been thrilled just to leave him out there to rot. The religious leaders certainly would have been thrilled to leave his body out there to rot, right? But now Joseph of Arimathea steps up, and and by the way, he puts himself into harm's way by doing this, identifying himself right away as uh, as being, you know, a supporter of Jesus, right? The the equivalent, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but the equivalent would be, you know, you're down at some Hollywood function and you wear a Make America Great hat, you know? It's like all of a sudden you identify yourself as being, again, you know, with somebody that they hate and and the misunderstanding would be I'm equating Trump to Christ. I'm not. I'm just simply saying that you, you label yourself. And so him stepping forward saying, let me have the body of Jesus and he can be buried in my tomb, he, he's wearing a big old hat now. That, that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting him kind of thing. So, um, so there's that. It's a big offering. He's subjecting himself to the wrath of the Sanhedrin, and he's sacrificing something that was very costly to him. And, and the religious leaders, they would have been content for Jesus to rot on the cross. But listen, think about and consider how God used this tomb. We talk about to this day, the tomb was empty. We talk about how the stone was rolled away. These religious leaders, they had paid attention to what Jesus said. This is why they went to Pilate and said, would you post a guard so nobody messes with the tomb? Because they were all afraid that the disciples were going to sneak and take away the body and then, you know, say, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. And then, you know, they don't want any of that. So they say, hey, post a a guard, right? And then what happens is that Jesus, supernaturally, risen from the dead, the tomb empty, and and God uses it in a a tremendous way. But listen, here's my point of application as we wrap it up. All of us have received something from the Lord, every last one of us, that we can offer back to the Lord in worship. Consider what Paul said to the Romans. He said, just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving... Give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. And so so the point of application here is we can consider Joseph of Arimathea and, and being used by God to actually be the fulfillment of prophecy. And 
And just through his generosity and his willingness, God uses him and it becomes an integral part of the resurrection story for, for generations and generations. And, and don't discount how God wants to use you. But it, it requires a willingness. It requires a sacrifice. But as we close, let me, let me bring the focus back to God's offering. Because the big idea of the text is that God the Father offered up His Son because He loves you and because He loves me. And He has made that way for us to come boldly before His throne. Come boldly to Him. And I want to encourage you guys, come boldly to the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help to help in our time of need. Three questions as we close. Questions of application. I do pray you'd write them down, take a walk with them. Number one, what hinders you from coming into God's presence? Because we've just studied and said there is nothing hindering you, but yet there are things that we either we put on ourselves or it's in our mind or it's in our conviction of sin. We feel like we can't come into God's presence. What hinders you? Take a walk with that. Second question, are there any sins in your life that you have not forgiven yourself for? Now, I'm not big into, into you know, i got to forgive myself kind of thing. But, but here's the sub-question, and this kind of implies what I'm going for. How does Jesus' proclamation that it is finished apply to, apply to the sin that you have such a hard time with, that you feel so guilty over, that maybe keeps you from coming to God? But, but how can you justify that? How can you reconcile that in light of what Jesus has said on the cross? It's finished. It's done. It's bought. It's paid for. Third question, what do you possess that you can offer to God for His glory?